Talk Soups and CEOs, Season 2, Episode 19. Interview with Dr. Dwight Jones, Superintendent, Denver Public Schools. But first, a word from Colorado Governor Jared Polis. Hello, I'm Governor Jared Polis, and I'm honored to speak with you all today. First and foremost, I want to thank the IEI members for your hard work and commitment to students, families, and communities. This past year, you and your team have been called upon in ways that you never imagined, and you've overcome so many challenges, and I want to thank you for your dedication. This pandemic is just one of the many battles you're fighting. The disproportionate impact of the public health and economic crisis on students who are already more likely to experience learning loss, significant challenge. Students from low-income families, students with disabilities, English language learners, students experiencing homelessness or in foster care with limited access to materials really count on your efforts to close the achievement gap and help stay on track to help them build a successful future. For far too long, too many students are prevented from realizing their full potential. But now, as we pave the way to the end of the pandemic and economic recovery, we have the opportunity to build a dedicated lane for our students that accelerates growth and fast tracks good job opportunities. This group of people has done an exceptional job of working to break down barriers to access of quality education across all communities. And it's critical that we respond to the call of this moment in time and the influx of federal stimulus money pouring into all 50 states, school districts, higher ed, and local government to leverage that investment for innovation and change. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Now's the time to work together, break conventions, and advance progress. Thank you for inviting me to speak, and I very much look forward to our continued partnership. Welcome back, everybody. You know what? I'm not going to lie. I'm remote right now, and I don't have my fancy podcast mic. So I'm going to keep this real short because the sound quality is bad. Dr. Dwight Jones is an amazing person. I'm so glad he sat down with me for an interview at our Broadmoor Colorado Springs Superintendent Summit. I hope you enjoy the interview. I hope you enjoyed the governor. That was a really neat thing that Governor Polis welcomed us to Colorado. There's more sessions from from the Spring Summit coming, and you'll get to hear them uh, come out on the podcast channel in the next couple of weeks. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe. Apologies for the bad audio. Please enjoy the conversation with Dr. Jones. We are starting off with a fireside chat with Dr. Jones, and I'm so glad you're here, Dwight. Well, it's nice to be here, and always good to see you, Doug. Yes, sir. Um, So let's just reflect a little bit. All right. Um, You've been at this a long time. 36 plus years. Yeah. How uh, are you, what was, what was, how did you feel when they called you or however it happened that you went from deputy and mentor to superintendent in this crazy time? What went through your head? Yeah, yeah. A lot of things went through my head as I'm sure 
um, a lot of the colleagues that are here, uh, especially when you did the uh, five minutes of fame yesterday, it was really great to hear from different superintendents across the country and kind of their thought process and how they kind of navigated this space. And unfortunately, you know, the pandemic is still going. I mean, even though vaccinations have started, I think school leaders are still dealing with a lot, trying to, in some cases, get some of their students back in person um, for the first time. And it seems like the longer that uh, students and staff are out, the harder it is, I think, for folks to feel comfortable to come back in person. So, so kind of how the transition happened in Denver. Um, I was um, coming, I had been working as a senior vice president with McGraw-Hill Education. I was going to get off of airplanes and just start to calm down. This was all before the pandemic. Susanna Cordova, the uh, former superintendent in Denver Public Schools, but you know, Susanna had done her whole career in Denver Public Schools. She had been a teacher, a principal, assistant superintendent, deputy superintendent, and then moved into the superintendency. So I've known Susanna for years. Um, I love her, I love her work. She's tremendous advocate for students and, and really does, in my opinion, a great job. She took the job and uh, I called her and said, well, you know, Susanna, I'm, I'm gonna be coming back and, and being permanent back in Colorado for a while. So I'm not sure what I wanna do next. So I thought I'd just reach out and, uh, you know, see, I always promised that if you became the superintendent in Denver, I would offer my support. So she said, great, I'll accept your support. And so she said, actually, I have a great opportunity that I'd love you to come in and be the senior deputy for equity and engagement. If you know about Denver, they've been doing some tremendous work around equity engagement, even really leaning into the LGBTQ plus work. And, you know, a lot of districts are just afraid of that work and really haven't taken that on. So I started there. Susanna ultimately exited and went to Dallas to work with Michael Hinojosa as his deputy. So uh, the board came to me to see if I'd be interested in being the interim. Of course, my first response was, thank you, but no. <laughs> and, um, so then uh, Susanna called me and Susanna said, well, remember you said you were coming to support me. So I really need you to step into that role. So I I uh, agreed to do it for six months. Um, I wanted the board to still aggressively hire a new superintendent. Um, as you know, I've had some great educational opportunities. So I felt like I've done my time in the superintendency and was not interested in that role. But, you know, it's been a good experience. I think, you know, DPS, DPS is a really special place. And so I've been working with a really great leadership team, working a lot with the board, and we're kind of moving things forward. Wow. So... I didn't hear anything there. I mean, I heard you say, yeah, because I've been doing this for a while. I may want to not do this. I'm kind of enjoying my new life. Yes. But you didn't say pandemic. I don't want any part of this. It sounds like once you got around, I'm going to go back into you know, to the grind. I'm going to dive in and try to help these folks. Yeah, I, I think that is, um, well, all, all leaders, I think, um, you know, I always say it's easy to lead when everything's going well. Yeah. It takes a lot more for leaders, I think, to step up like during a pandemic, um, you know, but we're experiencing things that we've never experienced. I mean, the um, one of the uh, superintendents was speaking yesterday. I think he had been a former uh, official um, and he was talking about every decision that he makes. Um, at least half of the audience is upset. And I think all superintendents can resonate with that. In this pandemic, it really doesn't matter what decision you make. Um, there are folks that are going to be upset.
but we've worked closely with our health officials. And at the end of the day, I heard um, the one gentleman that had been in a smaller district that was a bio, former biology teacher talk about the science. Yep. And I think it's really important to say we've got to get we've got to get our students back. We know that the best place for students is to be for in-person learning, especially for our, our younger or our students that still have room to catch up. And so we've got to get our students back, safety and security. So, but you got to do that in a safe way. And in Denver, our health officials have really stepped up. I think we've been able to get folks back in a safe way, but it's been easy. And it's still not easy. I, I still get a lot of emails about folks that are still fairly uncomfortable about coming back. And now we're talking about staff coming back that we gave accommodations to. Yeah. And, you know, staff uh, in Denver, we did not force anybody to have to take the vaccine. And so you've got staff available for vaccines, but everybody hasn't taken it. Right. And so folks on accommodations, we're just starting now to get staff back on accommod from accommodations. And, you know, our central office, about every probably 80 percent of central office employees have been doing one day a week out supporting buildings to help them to be back in person. Huh. Great. Interesting. Uh, how's your relationship with Hinojosa right now? <laughs> you know, all of you that know Hinojosa, he's a great guy. And uh, I just told him he's going to have to take me to a couple Maverick games. Uh, you know, go. he really loves the Mavericks a lot. So he, he certainly owes me. But uh, Michael Hinojosa is a good man. And, yeah. and Susano do a great job there. And from what I hear in all accounts, she's already doing a great job and having a really positive right. impact in Dallas. He's on TV all the time. <laughs> him and uh, Carvalho, always on TV. So I don't know. Yeah, I I think does he have uh, an agent? Like, how does, I, how does I don't know. I, I think for most superintendents, they try to avoid being on TV. Right. You don't want to be <laughs> so, in the press. Yeah, I, I think you try to stay out of the press. But you know, he's he's a funny guy. He's running a big system, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Dallas, you know, uh, outside of the Cowboys, probably uh, Dallas ISD is the most second most important thing in Dallas. Yeah, right. Um, so for for folks out here. Um, you know, if you've been a state commissioner, you've run major urban school systems, um, what would you say to folks who want to have that kind of, you know, work in their career path? What, what should, you know, so we, we have a lot of folks in the group who are superintendents of 5,000 kids or 3,000 yeah. kids and, you know, it's their first or second job or, you know, they just came out of being a principal or something. You know, how did do you, let me ask you first, what would you advise them about how to, set up their career if they want to go on this path. And then I'd also ask you, did you do anything intentionally to end up having this great career? Or, you know, think back to when you were at that time. I'd love to hear what you were thinking about. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Doug. Uh, you know, I started, um, my first superintendency was uh, right here to the south of Colorado Springs, a little district called Fountain Fort Carson. Um, we had 7,000 students. I really thought I had died and gone to heaven. Um, you know, we serve the military base of Fort Carson. So if you're if you're not familiar with the Colorado Springs area, it is heavy military. We've got um, a number of installations and a number of districts that really support a lot of the uh, men and women, you know, that really defend this country. So it makes a big difference. Patriotism is really important here in Colorado Springs. And so we were serving the base of um, Fort Carson, which is uh, Army, and they're kind of heavy artillery. And during the first Gulf War, you know, they they were some of the first that uh, went in early during that war. And 
you know, I was talking to one of my colleagues this morning and she was describing saying, you know, nowhere in school did we go to prepare for this pandemic. You know, you just kind of had to jump in and do it and kind of figure it out as you went. Well, I can say being a superintendent when um, you have the majority of your families and stuff involved in conflict, there was no preparation for that neither. And so being a superintendent on a military base in wartime and unfortunately having some parents that don't come home and, you know, you're their family away from their family. And so that was a really humbling experience. And so there was no plan for that. And so I guess the point I'm trying to make is I, I think when opportunity and leadership opportunity, regardless if you're in a small or a larger district, you know, folks have to, I think, step up and meet that challenge. Um, to become the commissioner here in Colorado, again, I really didn't have interest in doing that role. Um, it was actually the night before the applications was going to close that it was, um, I'm sure a lot of my colleagues can relate um, because our spouses are such partners with us in this work. It was my wife who said, well, you've always said that you wanted to make a difference. So why wouldn't you step in and uh, apply to see if you could make a difference for the whole state? And, and I didn't have a good reason as to why not to do that. And so I sent in my application. Uh, the next day, I took a half a day off and got my application in just in time. And I still remember uh, one of the state board members, because in Colorado, you work for a you work for the state board as the commissioner of education, but you serve on the governor's cabinet. So that already creates a little bit of uh, politics, <laughs> you know, between the state board and the governor. And so I remember the interview um, and I had been with the state board for about four hours going through questions. And finally, I just remember saying, well, I think I'm done. And they go, what do you mean you think you're done? I said, well, after four hours, if you don't know who I am, what I stand for, and kind of what I would do if I moved into that role, I said, I'm probably not your guy. So I think we're going to just stop this interview. And if you're interested in me, great. If not, I have a job that I love. And so I'm going to go back and do that job. And so driving home uh, that night, um, the governor called me on the way home. And the governor said, well, the state board are not sure that you'll take the job. I said, well, they hadn't offered me the job. And so when they offered the job, it was a governor that made that call. And, and you know, it was one of those positions where you just kind of stepped in. And then, you know, I, I think it was really about learning how you do support and service. And so as a Department of Education, we passed a lot of legislation that was really around making sure that we could support and serve our districts in a good way. Uh, moving on to Las Vegas, um, I was not interested again. Um, it was uh, some of There's the search. Here. Yeah, some of the search firms, and and the theme is really just saying when opportunity knocks, sometimes you have to step into it. You know, Las Vegas is three hundred twenty thousand students. It's the fifth largest district in the country, and it has a lot of challenges. And I grew up on a farm in western Kansas. I'm just a I, at the end of the day, I'm just a farm boy from Western Kansas and moved into that role and learned a lot, worked with some amazing people and uh, really worked with a community that wanted to do better by their kids. And so I guess my advice for folks is if, if opportunity knocks, you may say, well, I'm in a pretty small district. I started out in a district. My first superintendency again was 7,000. And I moved to, in Colorado, we have about 830,000 students across the state. 
the commissioner of education in Colorado has a lot of authority in working with the districts. And then Las Vegas was 320,000. That's a big jump from 7,000. And so um, I would just encourage folks to say if it feels right, if your spouse is up to the challenge, because I think it really has to be a partnership going into those roles, then I think, uh, why not? You know, what, what's that old saying? If not you, then who? Right. And so, you know, I think there's a great opportunity for folks to step up and lead. And, and I think right now I'm, I'm looking for folks. Um, and I know there's a lot of us in our, my generation of superintendents that are starting to step back, retire, think about something else looking for those uh, younger leaders to step into those roles. You know, leadership still matters a lot and it's still necessary to get it done. Um, so I think there, there's a bit of a theme there that you kind of got brought places, but I think maybe there's a, also a kernel of career advice there, um, which I've heard from, from others, including, including a couple of folks who've gotten into trouble as superintendents, where they were sort of trying to, f- trying to force something, a square peg round hole, you know, because I'm supposed to do this job and, you know, you walking away from that interview and saying, I'm done, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is what it, this is, this is what it is. Um, seems like there's something in there about, you know, don't, don't force it, you know, let your work speak for itself. Um, you know, of course today, most of you all have a resume online that we can see in your Twitter feeds, <laughs> right? Your Twitter feeds are sort of the resume. And I, I you know, somebody, I mean, I'm looking at Susan, I mean, just the tweets, she tweeted like four times sitting right here in front of me yesterday on Sunday. So like that, but that's, that's the resume as well as LinkedIn and other stuff. And people, you know, they can learn about you um, in any number of different ways, you know, a little different than than probably that state board finding out. Yeah, it it is a different environment. Uh, Susan, who, uh, you know, we all know and respect, uh, really excited for her district as her secondary students are kind of going back for the first time. And uh, I was, just did my heart good knowing, and, and I know how hard that is and how difficult that is to get folks to go back. And I, uh, I find that I follow a lot of my colleagues on Twitter and that's how I keep up with what's going on. And you know, it's, it still is a fraternity sorority. Um, you know, we still call each other and support each other. I, I know most of the large district superintendents across the country and uh, I reach out to them regularly, sometimes to offer an ear, sometimes to offer condolences because it's a really, really difficult job. And, and sometimes just to brainstorm about what's really working and what's making a difference. I, I, I love the field of education because most folks in education are willing to, if they figure out a better way of doing something, they're willing to share it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, I, IEI, I think, is, you know, the power of this institution is a chance to actually network and spend time with your colleagues. And um, it, it has been fantastic connecting with large and small. Uh, the superintendent that was from Tennessee describing the poverty, that that was just, you know, we think we have poverty and we do. Talk about Shanna? Yes. Yeah. But that was. Georgia, but yeah. Top of the was mountain. it Georgia? Yep. Oh, well, I'm sorry. The top of the mountain? Yeah. Yes. Yep. I, I just felt like I said that that was just eye opening to me. And, and I just hope to still find time later today to have conversations with her just to better understand how they're supporting some of the most severe poverty that, you know, sometimes uh, we're not always exposed to. Yeah. Uh, just, just quick room reset. Um, well, it's like I'm on clubhouse. Uh, we're actually in many rooms here, but <laughs> if people want to ask a question of Dwight, please put it in the chat and, and we'll certainly ask it. 
if anybody here in the room wants to ask a question or anything, just just holler at us. Um, I I want to also point out, a, Dwight said a couple of times about, um, you know, sort of understanding what people are going through in their various districts. And I was talking about Twitter feeds. Just uh, to our partner friends, I learned this one the hard way. Um, if you're reaching out to somebody that you know and have a relationship with but haven't spoken to in a while, Google the district and Google the superintendent to make sure that everything's okay there. Um, I once, uh, my friend Richard O'Malley, Dr. Richard O'Malley in Florence, South Carolina, when he was up in Jersey, I, you know, I emailed him, hey, what's he going to do with this, that? Do you want to talk to you about this thing? And he goes, I can't talk to you right now. My school burned down yesterday. Oh, wow. <laughs> Did you Google me? And I said, no. <laughs> so I learned that with the hard way. Like this, this stuff happens in public and keep in touch with these folks, even when you're not actively chatting to our partner friends. And I also, I sent out the link to the five minutes of fame to all of the virtual partners who are not oh, physically here with us. Because nice. for them it was on Sunday evening, they're probably with families and stuff. So I want to make sure they all got a chance to listen um, before our meetings today. So, yeah, I, I found that five minutes of fame to be, um, it, it was, it was very, uh, uh, I, I guess just encouraging, um, yeah. you know, again, in, in most cases, whether large, medium or small district, you have very similar challenges. Um, sometimes they're different how we go about solving them. Remember the superintendent that yesterday said, I called all of my teachers. I just, you know, for some of us in large districts, we just go, wow, I, you know, part of part of trying to communicate to all of your teachers during the pandemic has been a big challenge. I said, what a benefit for that superintendent to have the ability to talk directly to each of his yeah. teachers. I'm sure that had a positive impact. Sure. Let's shift gears a little bit. So Dwight also did some time on the vendor side. And, um, yeah, we, we just bump into each other at stuff over the years. <laughs> On treadmills. Yeah, exactly. Um, talk to us a little bit about making that shift. What was that like? Um, what did you like about being on the private sector side? What did you not like? Yeah, so um, I, I appreciate that, Doug, and I'm, and I'm glad to kind of share those experiences. I, You know, as I continue to say, I've had a, a lot of really great opportunities to work in the education field. Moving to the vendor side, I first of all, I always call them providers, not vendors, because I think sometimes what happens in this space is, um, you know, we have partners that are with us on the education side and partners that are with us on the research and development and curriculum. And, and you know, I really consider um, vendors as partners because this work is intense and there are some things that you can do internally and develop and build yourself. There's some things where it makes a lot of sense to just partner with someone that has more expertise, probably can spend the R&D in really developing and, and kind of figuring out and making sure there's research behind some of the very best practices. So, so I've always had a good relationship. I've, I, I can't think of very many meetings when uh, partners um, or vendors would reach out to me when I was a superintendent and I would not take that meeting. Um, you know, having a conversation with someone is there's nothing wrong with that. Doesn't mean that you have to do business or that you're going to do business. In some cases, I didn't know what was out there, or what I might need that I learned sometimes through those conversations. And, and so I continue to encourage both to have a high level of respect for each other and to continue that dialogue because, you know, we really are partners in this work. And, um, there's very few vendors that um, 
I, I think, aren't trying to help you get the very best results or help you solve a problem. And so moving into the private sector was just, uh, it, it was so eye-opening and I learned so much. As some of you know, I started uh, first uh, when I left Clark County, um, I joined um, Discovery Education and Discovery Channel, and that yeah. was a tremendous experience. I mean, How does that work, though? <laughs> right. So I'm guessing Paula was involved in this, Paula Reed, to some extent. Well, I, I knew Paula, but it was um, it was some other folks um, with Discovery, and uh, you know, we just um, were had some conversations. I in, in Las Vegas, I was not doing business with Discovery. I just uh, was really interested in the work that they were doing. And um, saw that as an opportunity and just started some conversations. So it'd be a great learning for me. Yeah. Because uh, that, when I, I think you know this, but that sort of resonated around the industry that Dwight Jones was going to Discovery, right? And it's because they, they, they're such a big company with, you know, such great relationships in yeah. every state in the, in the country. Uh, but, you know, we all saw that and said, huh. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it, it was interesting, and uh, hopefully, it was uh, part of a trendsetter. I actually think, um, you know, superintendents have such a wealth of knowledge and expertise, and and I think as uh, corporations and companies want to get it right, I think them having that opportunity to join up and network when a superintendent is interested in doing that seems like a pretty good relationship, and it sure was for me. I. I learned a lot, and I hope I was a value add to them. Um, I think I was, as as they asked for advice around a lot of things that they were doing. I hope the advice made it a better relationship and easier for, at that time, Discovery to have a connection with uh, educators that they were working with across the country. Yeah. From there, moving into McGraw Hill, which is one of the big publishers, I I have to tell you, I would have never dreamed of of joining uh, a company like McGraw-Hill as a big publisher, but they were wanting to move more of their materials into um, looking at equity and inclusion and uh, felt like that could be a great connection. Um, but I really joined because a friend of mine became the president of McGraw-Hill, uh, Heath Morrison. Some of you may know Heath Morrison, uh, you know, a former superintendent in Charlotte Mecklenburg and former superintendent in Washoe uh, in Nevada. I really met Heath when I was superintendent in Las Vegas because if you think about Las Vegas and Washoe, it's about 90% of all of the students in Nevada. Yeah. So, you know, we were 320,000. Uh, Heath's district in Washoe, um, which is Reno, was about 70,000. And so it really covered uh, pretty much the state of Nevada. And so became close friends. When he took McGraw Hill, he, he really talked me into saying, you've got to come and do this, uh, do this with me. And, and again, great experience. I learned a great deal. Um, yeah. But you know, I am a in-person public educator at heart. And so when I stepped back from McGraw Hill, moving back into Denver, you know, and a lot of my friends called me and said, Dwight, you've been gone from it a long time. How are you ever going to move back? And I can tell you, it was a lot of work. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, folks in districts work really, really hard. And, really hard. and it, uh, it it had to get that routine going again. But I, yeah. I really loved it. And, and it's great to be back in uh, public education. Uh, you know, the work is intense, but it's still such valuable work. Isn't part of it just the the way you schedule your time is different, right? you have a lot more meetings in a district where you're kind of, especially in the deputy role, you're on stage, 
Right. Yeah, is yeah. That, is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, and and also getting back to some of the media, <laughs> you yeah, know, right. it was a nice break. I I have to admit, and I think superintendents could attest to, and and media today with all the, uh, you know, from Twitter to Facebook, and I mean, you're just on all the time. I mean, it is really twenty four seven, and yeah. you know, in the early days, we just didn't experience media like that, and so stepping away to the private sector that break away from some of that intensity yeah. was nice and, yeah. and was a value add yeah. moving back into it. It took a little while just to say, wow, the open records request, yeah. all the stuff that just comes, the intensity of that, um, especially as the uh, senior deputy. So got a lot of opportunities to immediately engage. Um, yeah. You know, that, uh, that was probably part of the biggest transition. Interesting. Um, it's, it's such a, I have, I probably like this time of year, I have eight or 10 conversations with superintendents. I know members or others I know, and it's, I call it the chat. Oh, so the chat. Yeah, nice. I'm, I'm thinking about, I, I might, you know, at the end of my contract, can you, you know, help me think through what it might be like for me to go to the private sector. And I have a s specific set of things I say to folks. I'd love for you to help me with my next <laughs> round of those. Like what, what would you say? to somebody who's thinking about making that leap? Well, I would say, um, you know, make it for the right reason. Um, you know, my leap to the private sector was to say, how do I help them do their jobs better interacting with, you know, where the teachers, leaders, and the students are? Because at the end of the day, keep the main thing the main thing. It always has to be about kids. And I think folks in the private sector that have their mission right, have their focus right, it's really about students. You know, you might have an adult um, service that you're providing, but that is to make sure that those adults are, or those adults are better positioned to better serve kids. And so I, I would always encourage folks to say, do it for the right reason. It really is about still supporting schools, supporting kids and, and helping folks get it right. Mm -hmm. um, number two, I would always say, um, you know, respect those um, relationships that you have in the uh, school district. What I hope is every superintendent, I, I know a lot of superintendents and have tremendous respect for their work. Um, and I was always respectful of that when I moved into the private sector. You know, um, you know, there's lots of different kind of jobs. My, I never really was that interested on the job that it was going to be high stake sales because I didn't want, I want to, to bring up the S word. You bet. I did, well, I didn't want to call my colleagues and feel like, my goodness, Dwight is calling me for, I, I wanted to call my colleagues and, and, you know, really have a conversation about, you know, what's keeping you up at night. And, and if we have something that could uh, help solve that, then that's a great thing. If, if we don't, then, then that's a great thing. And, and, and not trying to, um, you know, push something that may not be a good fit. And, and I think, you know, finding that right balance is really, really important. And then finally, um, I, I always say it still has to be a decision with your partner mm -hmm. because at least for me, moving into the private sector, it was a lot of travel and yeah. it was being away from home sometimes uh, one or two weeks at a time. And that's a big transition both conferences and district meetings? Yeah, you know, I, uh, my youngest son, who's a senior this year that's graduating, and I know folks look at this old guy and say, you still have a senior in high school? I do. Um, he's graduating. He's going to um, San Diego State University. We're really excited yeah, to have him uh, going into higher ed. Um, 
but when I was in Las Vegas, he was in probably second or third grade. And I would work so much as the superintendent. I know a lot of superintendents recognize this, that I would leave in the morning before he would get up. And many times I got home after he had already gone to bed and we'd go all week and I'd see him on the weekend. He'd say, Dad, you've been gone all week. Actually, I'd been home all week. I just had missed that connection. Well, when I moved into the private sector, I really had been gone all week. And so it, it is a huge commitment of time. And I think you have to have that conversation, that decision with your family. Yeah. My, my version of the chat includes the S word. And I say, you know, like a lot, especially the younger the company, the more likely they're going to, if they're talking to you, they want or need your help with sales. And you have to just sort of reckon with yourself about how comfortable you are with that. Like we, one of the things I say to, I spend most of my days in the office on Zoom with potential partners to come here. And um, I, I always try to tell them, look, we're not afraid to talk shop here. You can come here and you can talk to our members about what you're trying to do with your business and you can figure out if it's a fit. You know, we don't have to tiptoe around the sort of sales conversation here. And I do that the same when, when my superintendent colleagues call me and say, I'm thinking about making the switch. So I think you have to reckon that, you know, and then have a frank conversation with the company that's talking to you. Uh, and to my to my partner colleagues, I would say um, it's it's really tough sometimes for these folks to make that leap to kind of being in a sales position. And the worst thing you could ever have is that you bring somebody on and then, you know, they're they're not going to if, if you're expecting them to make, you know, however many calls to their network and yeah. and they're not comfortable doing it. You just need to sort that out in advance. So this is that season when that stuff happens. So, um, you know, I just sort of put that out everybody based on what yeah yeah doug that's that's really good advice especially from uh the seat where you set where you spend a lot of time with superintendents yeah. and a lot of time with companies and you know i always say uh, especially for some of the smaller kind of startup companies sometimes that pushing so hard for sales makes folks actually miss what you really do well and i think the, the best sales always comes out of a honest conversation with the superintendent or their staff about trying to help solve a problem. And if you're the not if you're not the right solution for that problem, then I think you do yourself justice by not trying to push in to try to make yeah. that happen versus saying you probably are the right solution for a lot of districts. Um, and it just may not be for that one. And so finding that balance I think makes a big difference. Would you agree though that McGraw Hill and Discovery have, because they're well established, well capitalized companies, they have the luxury of playing the long game. And so they can let you do your thing. Whereas, you know, a company that's especially if they've got venture capital money, they're on a series A or series B, there there are people, all those pre purse strings who are saying to our friends who are here with us, you know, come on, like numbers, numbers, numbers. Um, and I find that a lot of our bootstrapper companies or our earlier stage companies have the luxury of playing that long game. Yeah. Right. But some of them, just so everyone's aware, some of them they've got they got people back home or whenever they have their next board meeting who, you know, are, are riding them pretty hard. And that's that tension is always going to be here in the business. One of the things we want to do is sort of help everybody understand both sides of it. And that's what our, our July event is going to be. We're sort of, we're flipping the script on our, uh, you know, right what we're doing here, we're kind of turning in and talking to each other. Yes. Then there are industry summits where you can go and hear about, hear from investors and CEOs about what they're doing with their businesses. They don't have too many educators at them. We're going to flip it. And we're going to hear from you all and we're going to broadcast to the industry what you all are doing. And that's part of we're trying to just sort of make these conversations happen and get more understanding between the two. 
Um, but it's so interesting that you've been on both sides in a really kind of serious way. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And again, um, compliments to you, Doug, and you know, IEI for actually really understanding that space and being fair to both sides because I, I think superintendents, small, medium, and large, will have a lot of really good advice for uh, partners and yeah. for companies out there. And um, and if the companies are willing to really listen to that, I think it can have huge upside on their ability to communicate well and really connect. Um, because again, we're, we're really not adversaries in this work, we're really partners in this work. And yeah. just finding a way to make that connection makes a lot of sense. So. So good for you for making well, that effort. Thanks. Um, I want to shift gears. Okay. We've talked a lot about um, the superintendency, and you've got such a great perspective on it here where you sit. Um, and I want to talk about race. I want to talk about gender because we, we're all talking about equity on behalf of kids, and that's great. I feel like we, we have the ability. I will say that anecdotally, we all know there are statistics that, that talk about um, how women and people of color spend have shorter tenure in their district superintendent jobs like we have that data council great city schools ran a study on this right so we know that to be the case that white people look like me white men are much more likely to stay in their jobs much longer to me that's a big problem um secondly we also we know that and anecdotally at least that our friends in superintendent jobs who do not look like me seem to have a lot more trouble uh it mistakes are magnified um, uh, press can be more adversarial sometimes. Depends on the situation. But when I sit back and watch what you all are doing in your districts, I see that we, we sort of have two ways of judging superintendents in some communities. Um, and I think it's harder for people who do not look like me to last in those jobs. And I would love to hear your perspective on this because we, and I'll say, we, we feel that we can speak out on this because we, we don't have a contract with the district that we have to try to keep, right? We, we're not in your jobs. So we can say this stuff on behalf of the group without anybody having to step up and say something that could jeopardize his or her contract because it's important to, to stay employed. <laughs> so we're trying to do that, and I'd love your insights on how we can better do that. Yeah, Doug, and, and thank you for kind of taking this on. And, and you know, unfortunately, um, right now in our country, I think – race relations and stuff has really been elevated. And and maybe I shouldn't say unfortunately, because I really think you you have to start having honest conversations to actually start to bring about change. And so maybe it's actually a good thing um, that we're having these conversations. Doesn't mean it's easy, but it's probably a good thing. I, you know, I, I, I shared earlier, I grew up on a farm in Western Kansas and, and my family, uh, my parents were um, some of the first black landowners in our county. And we moved to Western Kansas uh, on a wheat farm, if you know anything about farming. And that was in 1962. And so if you think about being a black landowner in Kansas in 1962, ran into a lot of racism. Um, our wheat fields, if you know anything about farming, you get kind of one payday. You know, you, you put everything into the field and come harvest. That's when that's when you get paid kind of for the year. And. You know, some of the white farmers and others would set our wheat fields on fire right when it was time for. So we we dealt with a lot during that time. And and I was fortunate because I had, you know, first of all, when I got home from school, my mother never worked outside of the home. There was plenty of work to do on the farm. 
but she was always there when I got off the school bus. And, you know, I know so many of our black and brown students don't have that luxury. And, and it really was a luxury. I had two parents and, you know, uh, and my father primarily worked for himself unless the wheat fields got destroyed, whether through hail or through other things, then sometimes he'd have to work away from the home. But the point I'm trying to make is what he taught me was that <laughs> racism happens. Um, what matters is how you decide you're going to deal with it. And so he and my parents never allowed me to use race as an excuse or for a reason not to go ahead and do whatever you think you need to do. Said, you know, still the greatest country in the world. And if you work hard enough, if you are educated, and so education was really important. You know, I've got four brothers and four sisters and everybody but one has an advanced degree. Education was vital to my parents. Um, and it was racism happened. Sometimes you have to deal with it. But at the end of the day, you got to figure out how you navigate it. So, you know, when I think about today, I do think for um, African-American and Latinx superintendents, it's a harder road to hold. Um, just what you described, research has proven it. And, and you know, I've got a lot of examples where it isn't like I haven't been free of that. Um, as a state commissioner, it's amazing how the media attacked me and, and did not attack my predecessors in the same kind of way. One of the examples I'll give is we had a desk. You know you know what happens in, in state departments? You know, a lot of times you can't spend money on furniture and stuff because people just take you to task for that. We had a secretary where her desk just kind of crumbled on her and, and unfortunately it injured her. And we paid out, I don't know, about a hundred and some thousand dollars in workman's comp for this injury, um, unfortunately, to this person. So we replaced the desk on my floor, not for me, mm -hmm. for um, the secretaries and stuff and, and uh, some of the workers that were on that main floor. We replaced the desk. I replaced my desk in my office, but I bought it personally. Because I said, I'm not going to spend taxpayer money. I know how folks are. So do you know that one of the media folks sent in a person with a hidden camera oh, to try to make sure they could capture, you know, this new furniture? So the media got me on camera and was really drilling me. And then at the end of the day, you know where we got the desk? From the prisoners. Because prison right now, you buy your furniture at the State Department. The prisoners make it. And actually, it was just a transfer. That was a 12. My budget was about uh, $5.7 billion. That was a $12,000 transfer. Amazing. And it's amazing how they took me to task and said, you know, this commissioner spending, you know, taxpayer money, $12,000. Now, you know, I, I certainly worked my way through that. I said, there was stuff that... Certainly I uncovered, I won't share, but my predecessor had done none of that stuff happened, but it, he was a white male. Yeah. And so there was those pieces. Now I had been taught by my parents to not take it personal, still get your job done and keep moving forward. For unfortunately, a lot of our black and, black and brown leaders and in the superintendency, small things get elevated to big things. And many times, not only are they sometimes removed from the job, it's almost like you have a hard time getting the next job. And um, so I think that's real. Um, 
you know, I, I think uh, a lot of our um, white um, leaders are stepping into that space to say, we don't think that's right. And I think there's been a real um, collaboration going on between leaders, period, regardless of their skin color or their nationality. And I think that's positive. There was one during the superintendent chat. Um, I really appreciate him when he said, as a white male leader talking about equity, it's important for me to say certain things and do certain things. And I said, when we partner together as leaders in this field and say that we're gonna collaborate as professionals together, there's some things that um, white leaders can do that I think can really support leaders of color. And I think that goes both ways. And so I think that kind of partnership will have a tremendous impact. If you think about the civil rights movement, you know, when they were sicking the dogs and stuff on a, a lot of the folks that were protesting, it was a number of white priests that actually locked arms and in Alabama and other places started marching in the front. They would not send the dogs and stuff on those white priests. And it really had a positive impact in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So I think folks coming together and, and saying we're going to be unified and make things better for each other is the right way to approach it. Thanks for that. And we just want to talk about it because it gets talked about whether, you know, usually it's at, you know, some event at the hotel lobby bar and it gets talked about it. We're talking about it privately. Yeah. So we feel we're in a position to talk about it publicly. Um, and, you know, we're also trying to talk more about developing the leadership pipeline. Yeah. Especially because, I mean, the superintendent jobs are opening up all over the place. This has been a tough year. Um, all educators, teachers are leaving, districts are having financial crunches. Um, so we try to just talk about, you know, and someone said it yesterday, trying to, to develop and recruit younger leaders and, you know, be mindful of those younger leaders looking like the kids that are in our schools. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And again, compliments to your organization for, you know, it's not always an easy topic to, uh, to take on, but I think it's necessary for us to talk about it. It's amazing how much we actually have in common once we'll start having some communication. Yeah. Yeah. We had a lot of things in common last night on this balcony. <laughs> I'll say that. That was a good time. Uh, okay, so um, how about you know let's let's finish here with you know this this is probably you know this June will be your last superintendent job maybe probably <laughs> well um, we never know what's going to happen never never say never because I sure would have never dreamed I would be the superintendent in Denver but, yeah. uh, but um, you know last last words of because a lot of these folks are going to be carrying their districts through districts through the next phase of this comeback and if you got a pep talk or words of wisdom or something you can share with everybody to to, to keep in the fight um, yeah I, I appreciate that and again um, I you know first of all Doug I'm no one special I've just been given a lot of great opportunity and I've tried to step into that space and and always try to do the best I can with being very honest and having a high sense of integrity I think it really really matters um, to uh, my colleagues um, the advice I the advice I would give is uh, always be true to yourself, and that you know that's not very um, I, I don't know if that's you know earth shattering advice, but um, I just think um, this business needs great leaders, and uh, I hope folks will keep stepping into that space. You know, the superintendency for those of you that have been superintendents for a long time, and 
think about my friend sitting right here. Um, it's really a hard job and it can be a really lonely job. And so you I have no colleagues, you got bosses and a board, you got people looking to you to lead and your yeah. only colleagues are here or in your county or, you know, well, that was the point I was going to make. I, I think, and, and, you know, I, I like how you've set it up here to try to protect superintendents when they come to an event like this, but getting together with your colleagues, uh, networking, making those relationships, you know, Susan and I have known each other a long time and I know I can call her at any time um, in good times and in bad times and have a colleague that I can have that kind of conversation with. And she knows that goes both ways. And so I always say it's even though the job may isolate you, it does not mean you have to be isolated. And so continue to attend events like this, spend time with your colleagues. It's a great use of time. It's a great use of resource to have that chance to network. Then finally, I, I really give a lot of credit. I have worked with so many amazing people that have helped make me look good. And so having that partnership with your colleagues and building a strong leadership team matters a lot. Doesn't matter if you're in a district of 5,000, you know, that one or two people that you're right and left arm matters a lot. And when you're in a large district, I can tell you that those that partnership, that team is really, really critical. And so developing a network of colleagues that, you know, supporting each other, elevating each other. Um, but that leadership team is is really, really important. And if you don't have it right, get it right, because it's not worth it. If you can't trust who you've got around you, then change them out and get the right people around you that you can trust because your job is so difficult that you, you've got to have a good team. And it takes a team. Again, whether it's a small, medium, or large district, it takes a good team to make it happen. Great. Thank you for listening. I'm not going to talk more in my bad mic. Hope you enjoyed the episode. More to come. Thanks for listening.